Jordan Peterson on Joe Rogan. Mr. Reagan. This video is phenomenal. It is insanely long. It's like over three hours long. I'm going to try to break down what I think are the most interesting parts of the interview. He expresses things more efficiently and more effectively and with greater clarity in this interview than I've ever seen him do before. There's also a lot of new things that I haven't heard Jordan Peterson say before. I don't know everything he's ever said, but it seems like there are some new, new ideas presented here that we haven't seen before. There's a technological revolution. It's a deep one. The technological revolution is online video and audio, immediately accessible to everyone all over the world. It's turned the spoken word into a tool that has the same reach as the printed word. And it might be even deeper than the original Gutenberg revolution because it isn't obvious how many people can read, but lots of people can listen. And now it turns out, so, I mean, you got a little bit of that with TV, right? And you got a little bit of it with radio. But there was bandwidth limitations that were really stringent, especially in TV, where you could get 30 seconds if you were lucky in six minutes, if you were stellar, to to elucidate a complicated argument. So you can't do that. Everything gets com- compressed to a, to, to a kind of oversimplified entertainment. But now, all of a sudden, we have this forum for long-form discussion, real long-form discussion, and it turns out that everyone is way smarter than we thought. Everyone is way smarter than we thought. I love that. I've made a very similar observation with regard to Trump voters. I think that there was this idea in the media, amongst politicians, among political pundits, among everybody who kind of keeps an eye on this stuff. Everybody just kind of thought that voters were stupid. Voters will just accept what we tell them. And what I realized with the Trump election is that people are way smarter than everybody thought they were. So people would see the media condemn Trump about something, which I think, you know, 20, 30 years ago, people would hear that kind of defamation of character and accept it and then move on to a different candidate. They didn't do that with Trump. What did they do? They sought out alternative perspectives, alternative explanations of what was happening. And I could see that people were utilizing the internet to get a far greater number of perspectives and ideas than they had ever done in the history of politics ever. And This showed me that the voter in America, especially the right-wing voter, was cleverer than anyone had ever given given them credit for in the past. Regular people for, for a long time have not been given the credit they deserve. And I started to think recently that maybe, maybe the people that come out of the top universities, you know, the really, the intellectual elite, they call them, perhaps they're only the intellectual elite because their parents got them into a good school. It's possible that There is an enormous number of people that we can now draw from in the general population. They're now going to be exposed for the intellectual juggernauts that they are because they now have access to an insane amount of information. They also have the capacity to express their ideas via the internet. So I do think we're going to see an explosion of of success coming up from the sort of common man. I don't know when that's going to happen, but I, I, do, I do expect that it will. What you're talking about when you're, when you're saying people, especially radical leftists, have to concede certain points whenever they discuss things, this is so true and so important because you see that play out over and over again. There's very little variation from the official narrative when they talk about important subjects or controversial subjects. I like what he says here. There's very little variation in leftist ideas. I used to listen to NPR uh, for my leftist news, leftist media. It eventually became so redundant 
that I had to stop listening to it. I switched to BBC News, and they're a little bit better because they have a broader spectrum of stuff that they discuss, I think. They're just so international. It's not all about American politics all the time, right? But whenever they do get into American politics, they're very leftist, and that's redundant as well. So I can't really rely on far-left media to expose me to rational ideas on the left. I'm, I'm actually not sure how many rational ideas the left does does have, but, uh, I mean, CNN, CNN is just, Trump is evil, Trump is evil, Trump is evil, there's a boy stuck in a well, Trump is evil, Trump is evil. I, I still read leftist media, if, if a story comes up, Huffington Post, or New York Times, something like this, I'll read it through that media, but it's, I mean, there's nothing, I mean, there's, once you kind of are familiar with leftist ideology, you don't, you don't hear a lot of new ideas come from that side. And that's always going to be true about the fundamental ideas, right? The core ideas from the left and the right are going to kind of be the same. I, I think on the right, we're, we're constantly finding truths about about the ideas that we, we're thinking about and, and finding new ways to express those truths and finding new connections between those truths and things like that. Um, that's why I think that, that Jordan Peterson was such a success. One of the big reasons was because I think a lot of people were just hungry for for finding new facts and new ideas about the stuff that they were thinking about. Um, and, and he just is such a wealth of information because of his education and his research into clinical psychology and all these sorts of things. Everybody had been starving for that for so long. He, he really satisfied that need that people had for that stuff. There's buzzwords, right? Diversity is one, but that means diversity by race and ethnicity and, and sexual preference, for example, as, as if those have anything to do with genuine diversity of ideation, and they don't, and there's no evidence that they do. Inclusivity, I'm never even sure what that means. Um, equity, it's a code word in some sense for equality of outcome, which is an absolutely deadly doctrine. I think of all the mistakes that the radical left are making and the moderate left for not calling them out on it, the equity doctrine is at the top of the list. And then there's other associated things like white privilege, that's a good one, and systemic bias, and which is a, it's an absolute embarrassment from the perspective of a of a reasonable academic psychologist because psychological tests have been used to prove that there's this implicit bias that, that lurks everywhere and the tests aren't reliable and valid enough to make that claim. And there's also no evidence at all that these unconscious bias retraining seminars have any effect whatsoever that's positive. It's all nonsense pushed by ideological fulminations of the radical left. I would say that a lot of leftist talking points are founded in this idea of implicit bias. Jordan Peterson always says the same thing about this. The literature on this is bad. What does that mean? The studies that they've done to show that implicit bias exists and that we all have this very sort of like low-level racism, and he's saying that it's all kind of silly. It doesn't show anything valuable for society. Well, I think a kind of implicit bias exists, and I'm going to call it familiarity bias. So I, I do think that there is a strong difference between being biased towards something that is familiar and being a bigot. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, this is definition number one, obstinate or unreasonable attachment to a belief, practice, faction, etc. Intolerance, prejudice. Okay, so, so lack of reason is an important distinction here, right? So in order to be a bigot, you have to be unreasonable. I would go even further and say you're irrational. You can have a bias that is completely rational. So let's call that rational discernment. Because you've got to be able to discern rationally between things that are beneficial or harmful. Now we have built into our brains functions that give us quick and easy ideas about what things are safe and what things are harmful. And one of those things is familiarity. If you're familiar with something, you have a better understanding of it and you know how safe it is. 
If you are unfamiliar with something, you have no idea how careful you need to be about that thing. So the default setting is be careful. So if your family was good to you, and most parents presumably care for their children to some extent, you grow up as a child thinking, okay, my parents are safe. That is a sort of symbol in my mind, probably the clearest symbol in a person's mind of safety and security. If you go out in the world and you see people who look like your parents, your family, you're going to think, okay, those people are safe. I'm familiar with that type of person. If you go up and you see other people that you're unfamiliar with, you're gonna think, okay, I don't know how to deal with these people because they don't look anything like my family or they look less like my family than these people. So I do think that there is a familiarity bias out there, but that familiarity bias is rational discernment. That is how you should act naturally in the world. So not only do I think Jordan Peterson is right to dismiss the harmful nature of implicit bias, but I would go further and say the natural rational discernment that we have of the unfamiliar is actually a positive aspect of being a human and that we should not condemn that as being akin to like low-level racism. Doesn't matter if it's basketball or hockey or plumbing or law. As soon as there's something valuable and you're doing it collectively, there's a hierarchy. The hierarchy can get corrupt and rigid, and, and then it stops rewarding competence and it starts rewarding criminality and power. And so there's always the danger the hierarchy will become corrupt. The right-wingers say, we really need the hierarchies and we should abide by them. And the left-wingers say, yeah, but wait a second. A, your hierarchy can get corrupt and might. And B, because some people are way better at it than others, you're going to produce a bunch of dispossessed people at the bottom. And that's not only not good for the dispossessed people, it actually threatens the whole hierarchy. You have to attend to the widows and the children, let's say. Now you can think about that as an eternal problem. You can't do without hierarchies. And that's the right-wing claim in some sense. You can't do without hierarchies, and they're valuable. But they're also prone to corruption, and they dispossess people. Okay, so now that's an eternal problem. The question is, what do you do about it? And the answer to that is, there's no final answer to the problem. So what you have to do is you have to have a left-wing, and you have to have a right-wing, and they have to talk all the time about whether the hierarchy is healthy and whether or not it's dispossessing too many people. Now, I think one of the problems is we know how to define when the right goes too far. I think we learned that after World War II. I think if you're making claims of ethnic or racial superiority, you get to be put in a box and put off the shelf, right? You're not in the dialogue anymore. It's obvious that the left can go too far, even though they're necessary participants in the discussion, but we don't know how to define when they've right. gone too far. Even the people on the right don't know what to point to when they say, no, you've gone too far as a leftist. I think the really deadly leftist presumption is equality of outcome. I think as soon as you start talking about equality of outcome, you should be put in a box and put off the shelf. But it isn't obvious why. Like, that doesn't sound like, you know, white people overall. It doesn't have the same guttural punch that the excess of the right has. It's, right. well, you're for equality of outcome. Why is that bad? Well, it's bad because when you play it out in society, and there's endless evidence for this, it's an instantaneously murderous doctrine. And I think it's because it shifts so quickly into a victim-victimizer narrative. So imagine you, you're, you're starting to divide the world up into oppressor and oppressed, right? And you're going to do something about the oppressors. And almost everybody can be defined in terms of their group identity in some way that makes them an oppressor. So like if you're a black man... Well, you could argue that you're oppressed because you're black, but what about the fact that you're a man? And so does that make you an oppressor or someone who's oppressed? And the answer is, as the revolution progresses, if there's any dimension along which you can be categorized as oppressor, you end up dead. What, what seems to happen as soon as you decide that the hierarchy is unfair because there are oppressors and oppressed, 
then you can go after the oppressors with moral virtue. But the problem is, is that you, there's almost no limit to the number of ways that you can categorize someone as an oppressor. The, the category just starts to expand. Like the communists killed all the socialists. They killed all the religious people. They killed most of the students. They killed all the productive farmers. It's like they killed all those people because they were oppressors, because they had more than someone else. That's how they defined it in order to get the people to rally against it. Yes. Yes, it's a, yes, and it, and the, and the definition kept slipping because well, look, look, even now it's like well, let's say we rally against the one percent, you know, and, and those would be the money owners. Let's say it's like okay, who's in that group? Everybody in North America is in that group. Worldwide, yeah. Well, but who who but sets you, the parameters? Right, right? Well, it's, it's thirty four. Like, it's thirty four thousand dollars a year sets you in the one percent worldwide. Right, right. So so does that make all of us oppressors? Ba basically, everybody who lives above poverty in America is in the one percent of the world. Right, right. And also by historical standards. Yeah. And so the problem is, the problem with the oppressor-oppressed narrative is that you can multiply the oppressors endlessly. And there's no end to going after them. Right. And you, as soon as you make a definition, you can move the boundaries and then the next person is the oppressor. Mm -hmm. And then you mm -hmm. keep going. This is amazing. Everyone in America should see this clip. We have this idea that's become rampant in the West that there's something ultimately corrupt about the patriarchal tyranny and that it has to be dismantled right down to its core. It's like, okay, do you listen to random selections of music online or do you do what everyone else does? You go for the one-tenth of one percent of songwriters and you li only listen to them. You only listen to the one, you only read the productions of one-tenth of one percent of writers. You only listen to the podcasts of one-tenth of one percent of podcast broadcasters, right? When you watch sports on TV, you only watch the athletic contributions of one-tenth of one percent of athletes. So, like, where's the equality exactly? Where's that in your life? You people who are pushing for equality of outcome, you manifest that in anything you do? You don't. You're unbelievably selective just like everyone else. And the reason you're selective is because you want the best in all of those realms. The best argument for the open market ever. One way to not do very well in any hierarchy is to have a low IQ. And if you have an IQ of less than 85, it's hard for you to read well enough to follow instructions. That's about 10% of the population, might even be higher than that. Okay, so how are you going to compete? And the answer is, you're not, because low IQ is a good predictor of poverty. That's the essential problem of the dispossessed. It's like hierarchies are complex tools to attain necessary goals, but they dispossess people. What do we do with the people that they dispossess? The answer is, we don't know. So we have to talk about it constantly to figure out how to solve it, because it's an ongoing problem that transforms, and that's the reason that political dialogue is necessary. This is a beautiful description of all politics. All politics are about protecting the vulnerable. One reason to stand up for the dispossessed is because you're empathetic, you know, and, and empathy is not an automatic good. This is something we make a big mistake about. We think, well, I'm feeling sorry for you, therefore I'm good. It's like, no, I might be feeling too sorry for you. I might not be demanding enough of you. You know how you tell your kid, it doesn't matter whether you win or lose, it matters how you play the game. You tell your kid that and they look at you and they think, well, what do you mean by that? Aren't I supposed to try to win? And you say, well, yeah, you're supposed to win, but... It doesn't matter whether you win or lose. It matters how you play the game. You know that that's right, but you don't know how to explain it to your kid. Okay, so imagine this. This is how it works. And this is crucially important. Life is not a game. Even a game is not a game. Because a game is the beginning of a series of games. But then life isn't the championship. Life is a whole bunch of championships. It's a whole sequence of them. And so what you're actually trying to train your son to do is to 
be a contender in the entire series. And the way you do that is by helping him develop his character. And the character is actually the strategy that would enable him to win the largest number of games across the largest possible span of time. You don't want to teach him to win. You want to teach him to play well with others. So then he's fun to play with. And this is absolutely crucial. You, get, you, can, you can help your kid become fun to play with between the ages of two and the age of four. If your kid is fun to play with, then what happens? Kids line up to play with him. And adults line up to teach him. And if kids line up to play with him, then he'll have friends his whole life. And if he's fun to play with, then adults will teach him things. And then he wins at life. And so when you say to your kid, it doesn't matter whether you win or lose, it matters how you play the game. What you're saying is, don't forget, kid, that what you're trying to do here is to do well at life. And you need to practice the strategies that enable you to do well at life while you're in any specific game. And you never want to compromise your ability to do well at life for the sake of winning a single game. And that's a real thing. That's a real ethic. It's a fundamental ethic. Empathy is not always a good thing. This is fascinating. He's, he's kind of expressing here what tough love is as an adult, right? You're kind of preparing your kids for the world. And the same thing could be said for basically anybody that we see as victims or vulnerable. The left uses vulnerable people as a kind of weapon. Black people are oppressed. Hom homosexuals are oppressed. Women are oppressed. Whatever, right? The environment is vulnerable. We need to protect it. Because black people are oppressed, we need to use that to do something against white people. Because women are oppressed, we need to use that to create legislation against men. Corporations are harmful to the environment, so we have to do something against corporations. To me, this kind of activism has negative consequences. And when negative consequences aren't taken into account before action is taken, it can be disastrous. And I, Jordan Peterson talks about that kind of stuff a lot. And But it, yeah, it's a fascinating idea that we shouldn't always just be nice to everyone who claims victim status or who, or, who, or who is even actually vulnerable or who's even actually a victim, you can't always just be overly sympathetic. I, I love this point. I thought it was really, um, it's something I haven't heard him talk about before in this way exactly. I've never heard him say empathy is not always a good thing, and I, but I love that. It's more trivial in games than it is in fights. And it's also the response is much more negative to the, from the fans if you lose a fight and complain about it. It is, it's ruthless They're, because they understand that you've made a, a huge character error, especially if you were a champion. That is one of the most disappointing things ever when a champion complains. Right. And, and it is, okay, so, the response so, okay. is horrific okay. from the audience. Okay, so that's a great example. So let's imagine what does the person who loses something important with grace do? And the answer is fairly straightforward. He accepts the defeat and thinks, okay, what what is it that I have left to improve that will decrease the possibility of a similar defeat in the future? Yes. Right? So, yes. So, so what he's doing is, because the great athlete and the great person is not only someone who's exceptionally skilled at what they do, but who's trying to expand their skills at all, at all times. Yes. And the attempt to expand their skills at all times is even more important than the fact that they're great to begin with, because the trajectory is so important. Part of that is the skill, because yes. they put in the practice, but part of that also is the willingness to push the skill farther into new domains of development with each action. And that's really what people like to watch, right? They don't like to watch a perfect athletic performance. They like to watch a perfect athletic performance that's pushed into the domain of new risk. They want to see both at the same time. Yes. You're really good at what you do, and you're getting better. Okay, so you lose a match. 
which is not any indication that you're not good at what you do. You might not be as good as the person who beat you. But if you lose the match and then whine, what you've done is sacrifice the higher order principle of constant improvement of your own skills. Yes. Because you should be analyzing the loss and saying, um, the reason I lost insofar as it's relevant to this particular time and place is the insufficiencies I manifested that defeated me. And I need to track those insufficiencies so that I can rectify them in the future. And if I'm blaming it on you or the referees or the situation, then I'm not taking responsibility and I'm not pushing myself forward. I actually talk about this exact same thing in my video about how to get girls, right? Being self-aware is attractive. Refusing to recognize your shortcomings or your failures indicates delusion, which is a product of a lack of maturity or self-awareness or a lack of self-confidence or a combination of these things. And that's just not attractive. If you are self-aware, if you can recognize your shortcomings and your failures, then that indicates that you are at least capable of improving yourself, rising above where you were before. If you constantly just say, oh, no, no, no I'm, I'm not bad at that, or oh, no, 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 that wasn't a failure, that indicates you're never going to improve yourself, right? If you can't at least admit that you have shortcomings, so if you're a guy and you're watching Jordan Peterson and you're recognizing that you have that you have shortcomings in your life, that you can improve yourself and you're trying to do that and you're single, <laughs> you are making yourself already more attractive to women. So good for you. That's another thing you keep saying. Aim low enough. Have a low enough bar. Why do you, why do you mean that? Well, let's say you've got a kid and you want the kid to improve. You don't set them a bar that's so high that it's impossible for them to attain it. You take a look at the kid and you think, okay, this kid's got this range of skill. Here's a challenge we can throw at him or her that exceeds their current level of skill, but gives them a reasonable probability of success. And so, like I'm saying it tongue-in-cheek to some degree, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, but if you're, but I'm doing it as an aid to humility. It's like, well, I don't know how to start improving my life. Someone might say that. And I would say, well, you're not aiming low enough. There's something you could do that you are regarding as trivial. That, that, that you could do, that you would do, that would result in an actual improvement. But it's not a big enough improvement for you, so you won't lower yourself enough to take the opportunity. This is a brilliant point. I actually think that this is the single most limiting factor that inhibits people from improving their life. Like Richard Dreyfus says, baby steps. Baby steps? It means setting small, reasonable goals. One of the reasons that audiences are responding to what I've been saying in my lectures and what I've been writing about is that I don't tell people that they're okay the way they are. No, I say, no, no, you could be way more than you are. And they're relieved about that, you see, because if you're in a dark and terrible place and someone says you're okay the way you are, then you don't know what to do about that. It's right. like, no, I'm not. I'm, right. having a, I'm having a terrible time and I'm hopeless. You're okay the way you are. Well, then what? what? That's it? That's it? That's where I am? And what do you want to tell a young person? You're 17. You're okay the way you are. It's like, no, you're not. you got 60 years to be better. And you could be way better. You could be incomparably better across multiple dimensions. And in pursuing that better, that's where you'll find the meaning in your life. And that will give you the antidote to the suffering. You know, this is a brilliant reason not to tell people that they're perfect just the way they are. This is a very popular thing to, to say. You hear it in a lot of popular music. Um, I think Madonna did a song like this. Lady Gaga does songs like this. Pink, I think, does a, does a song like this. There's this whole movement about your flaws give you value. It's obviously not a good idea to tell people that they're useless and complete degenerates for no reason whatsoever, but it's also not good to tell people that they're amazing just the way they are. Like, it's, it's good to tell them that they have value and that they have shortcomings, right? And that they can improve. That's, that's how everybody 
everybody should think about themselves all the time. I think it's actually okay to give people trophies for participation, just so long as you also give people bigger trophies for success. <laughs> when I was a kid, they would give out trophies for participation, but they also gave out, you know, first place, second place, third place, this kind of stuff. And I remember thinking, like, this trophy is crap. It, it's almost like turning the knife. Here's your trophy of failure. <laughs> yeah, so I don't mind participation trophies. Just, just have the other trophies too. Meaning is actually an instinct. Like, you think, okay, so we already decided that incremental self-improvement is the proper route Okay, so how do you know when you're incrementally self-improving properly? And the answer is it's deeply engaging. It's deeply meaningful. And the reason for that is you're actually adapted neurologically to identify the pathway of maximal incremental improvement. And your sense of intrinsic meaning signifies that. That's how your bloody brain is wired. This is a fascinating idea. You will perceive meaning in your life when you are maximally improving. I love that. I absolutely love that. I think for me, I always felt like I had specific things that I wanted to accomplish in my life. So I always felt like I was I was doing work toward that aim. But what's funny is that I've gone through periods where maybe like I haven't worked for a week or I haven't worked for a few weeks. And I start to feel really like crappy about myself. I'll be doing a lot of personal work. I'll be doing like, I'll be writing a lot of stuff, you know, because I'm a writer. That's kind of my main thing. And I'll be writing all kinds of stuff and I'll get a ton of stuff accomplished as a writer. But none of that stuff will have made me money. So I won't feel like, I won't feel like that there's, there's any sort of satisfying reward to the work that I did. And I know that sometime in the future there will be a, uh, there will be a reward, but it's like, because I'm kind of failing as a human, I'm not making money so that I can like survive and pay rent and like buy food and stuff like that. It, it really like knocks your self-esteem. So, you know, when, if you're a creative person, there's always this balance. You know, you've got to do the work that's going to allow you to survive. And, and then you're doing the work that's going to make hopefully an impact on society in the future. Despite the fact that there's far more meaning for me in doing the, the bigger work, the writing, I often feel much more confident uh, about myself when I'm making enough money to live and maybe a little bit of extra so I could take a girl out or something. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. It's like a very fundamental, you know, lizard brain thing where like if we're, if we're able to survive and eat and buy shelter and, you know, these kind of like basic necessities, you know, we feel more like a man. We feel more like a, you know, we feel more like an adult. We feel more like a responsible person. And I, th I think that has something to do with the fact that the vast majority of people can do it. Almost everybody has a job, works to make enough money for themselves, pay their rent, you know, eat, all that kind of stuff. So if you're below that, if you're below the line of actually being able to survive, that's depressing. <laughs> you know, that that does not feel good. So e even if you feel like that you have a sort of like a higher goal, if you're not also accomplishing baseline goals, then it doesn't make up for it, right? The lofty aspirations don't make up for failing at a baseline level. So you have to do both. It's, it's a very frustrating place to be, being like a creative person, being an artist, in my case, a writer. But, but that's, that's life. You know, that's, that's the life of a creative person. I mean, that's just, the, that's just how, it, how it goes. So this is kind of a difficult thing for me to, to relate to because I've always felt that there was meaning in my life. I mean, being a religious person definitely has always helped with that. Yeah, for somebody who does not feel like their life has meaning, if they are on a path of maximal improvement and they can actually see the change, they will feel meaning in their life. The things that you find that you're good at, you, you're drawn to those things. And when you succeed over and over and over again, you feel fulfilled, right? You're doing, you're doing great, right? Especially if you're 
if you can foresee some kind of future benefit from all this work, it's even better, right? Because you, you have a grander goal, you have a greater goal. It's, it's such a brilliant point. It's such a brilliant point. I haven't heard him say that before. I love it. The way out of the excesses of the right and the left is through the individual. I think the West got that right. The fundamental unit of measurement is the individual. And the fundamental task of the individual is to engage in this process of humble self-improvement. I believe that's the case. And that's where the meaning is. And that's where the responsibility is. And I think and I'm hoping that if enough people in the West and then and then the rest of the world for that matter, but we're very polarized in the West right now. If enough people take responsibility for getting their individual lives together, then we'll get wise enough so we won't let this process of political polarization put us back to the same places that we went so many times in the 20th century. I don't see another antidote for it. It's not political. It's ethical. This is interesting. I think, I think Jordan Peterson has a great point here. I grew up conservative and in a Christian family. Everybody in my family was very practical and rational, right? So I associate practical, rational thinking with Christianity and conservatism. So I grew up with this idea that right-wing thinking is rational and left-wing thinking is irrational. Um, Christian thinking is clear and atheist thinking is sort of looking through sort of like a, a haze, looking through a fog, looking through a mist. Because I do think that Christian thinking provides clarity. I do believe that. I know a lot of the atheists that, that follow this channel will completely disagree with me, but I, I, I think that's absolutely true. And I, I think the left is atheist and the right is Christian. And a lot of people are going to be pissed off at that because they're going to say, well, you know, there's a lot of religious people on the left and, you know, not everybody on the right is religious. And that's absolutely true. The left is not utterly comprised of atheists, but its fundamental ideology is anti-Christian. The right isn't utterly comprised of Christians, but its fundamental ideas are based on Christian values. Since the 19th century, there has been a progressive push against traditional Christian ideas by certain segments of society. Those segments of society coalesce to create leftist ideology, right? And if you don't believe me, just think about the USSR. They banned religion. I mean, who is it that's always telling us we can't have the Ten Commandments in a courtroom? The fundamental principles of leftist ideology are atheist. Now, all that said, I think I've failed to consider the fact that a lot of conservatives are not rational. Right. You know, they're guided by things other than reason. And, and Peterson's absolutely right. Bringing people into the light on a personal level will clarify many things for them on a political level. And that's true for people on the left and the right. I happen to think that this will make everybody more conservative. But but maybe that's the wrong way of looking at it. Maybe I should think about it like rising out of a fixed political ideology into clarity. Right. So you've got people on the left, people on the right clarity. I know people are biased against conservative, the word conservative, the word Republican, the word right wing. You know, these words trigger sort of like negative response in a lot of people on the left. But I don't mind shedding all of those labels if it means facilitating clarity of thought in more people. I don't think that involuntary celibates, I don't think that having enforced monogamy as a part of our cultural norm is going to help those people. I really well, it does, don't. It does. How's it going to help them? Well, because what happens is if a polygamous society develops, mm -hmm. which is the alternative, then a small minority of men get all the women. Society. Yeah, well, you see this happening in, in universities where women outnumber men. 
so that the men hypothetically have more sexual opportunity. But that isn't what happens. What happens is that a small minority of men have all the sexual opportunity. A fairly large minority of men don't. The women are unhappy because they can't find a committed relationship. It's bad for most of the men. And the men who have all the sexual opportunity get cynical. But isn't this in some ways against your whole idea of equality of outcome? Because you're, you're talking about equality of sexual outcome now, if this is what they enjoy. If it's a man who doesn't want a family and enjoys dating multiple women, why is that bad? Well, the, I think the fundamental reason it's bad is because it's bad in the long run for children. It's bad for children yeah. if he chooses to have children. Yeah, well, that that's makes it. Sense. But, that, but that's it. That's, that's the fundamental it. issue as far as I'm concerned. Right. And, and I think it's the answer. Well, first of all, I'm not in favor of unbridled hierarchies. Like I already said that, you know, the proclivity of a hierarchy is that all the spoils go to the person at the top. Right. And that can destabilize the whole structure. Yes. So we have to have a dialogue about how to rectify that. But how and could I'm, you possibly rectify that if one man is – but like say if we've got one six-foot-five beautiful man who's got a perfect body and he's yeah. brilliant and he just wants to date a bunch of women. Yeah. And all the rest of the people are five-foot-one and they're fat and they're lazy and like this guy's going to – if this is the competition, he's going to win. Yep. Yep. There's well, no way around this. And yep. even well, if you decide happened, to have enforced monogamy where it becomes a popular thing, the women are going to be more drawn to him if he chooses to date them. They might decide, I would rather have him sometimes than never that, at that all. Is, that is actually what does happen. But what is wrong a, with that? Well, What's wrong with it is that it destabilizes society and it's bad for children. Right, you said that. Yeah, but, that's but what if what, they don't want it. to have children? But there's a lot of people that don't want to have children. There's a lot of people that choose to go their entire life without having children. There's men in their 30s. One of, some of my friends have vasectomies. They don't want children. Mm -hmm. So why, why would that help in any way, these involuntary celibates? That's a good question. Do you, but do you, you see my point? Where I you do. Almost I do. Have Look, a, I see your point. There's no doubt about it. It doesn't run contrary to my opinions that the issue of outcome has to be addressed. I already said there needs to be a reason for the left and the right. Mm -hmm. And that the problem with hierarchies is that they can get too steep and destabilize everything. Right. That does happen. That particularly happens in the sexual domain. And there's plenty of anthropological evidence for that. But you still might say, well, who cares? Because the men who are, who are winning should be allowed to win and the women should be allowed to choose. It's like, right. yes, except that there's the problem of children. And so society steps in on behalf of the children. And you can say, well, lots of people don't want to have children. And yes, and that's truer now than it used to be, although many of those people end up having children anyways, you know, the guys who are sleeping yes. around all the time. So that doesn't circumvent the problem. But the issue here for me isn't the men or the women. It's the children. And we're trying to set up societies where the probability that children will be raised in something approximated in an optimal environment is optimized. And that's going to mean sacrifice of opportunity and choice on the part of adults. You do not need a fully polygamous society to produce involuntarily celibate men. You just need women not to require commitment. If women are having sex purely for fun, without recognizing the value of monogamy, they're only going to be sleeping with, the, with hot guys. Because why, why would they sleep with anybody else? So these hot guys are going to get all the girls, and you're going to have a lot of other guys just never having sex. Despite the fact that those guys might have other traditionally attractive qualities to these women. And the hot guys might have no attractive qualities, except for just being hot, right? So that can also produce involuntarily celibate men. You don't need a fully polygamous society. 
And people don't just suffer because they don't have somebody to be with. People also suffer because of the reduced quality of romantic and physical relationships. Now, what do I mean by that? Romantic and physical relationships are always more satisfying if you respect the person that you're with, right? So if you see the person that you're with, either physically or romantically, as high value, then you are naturally going to value that experience more. You're going to value yourself more for being involved in that relationship. If, on the other hand, you see the people that you're with as disposable, what value does that add to your life? You know, I always say that any guy can be a playboy if his standards are low enough, right? But that's the thing, right? So if you don't respect the people that you're with, it's it's not as valuable an experience. You don't like yourself, you think, okay, well, I'm lowering myself to just like whatever for what physical gratification or something like that, right? And, and that's actually kind of a terrible thing because what it ends up doing is it debases all of sex and it debases all of romance, right? You become cynical. Every guy or girl who I've met who have been utterly devastated in relationships become incredibly cynical about relationships. And what usually happens is that guy or that girl, um, start to like sleep around, right? They start to have relationships with people that they're not really that interested in. And and that makes them very, very cynical. Because then they start to think like, you know, this is all a sham. You know, people just date whoever. Nobody really cares. And it's like, no, 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 you, you don't care. The problem is that you don't care. What you don't realize is a lot of the girls that you just slept with may have fallen in love with you and you may have just slept with them and totally broken their heart. And, and yeah, maybe a lot of them didn't care. But a lot of them may have, and you're just assuming that they feel the same way you do, and that's not necessarily true. They may, they may have thought, oh, this is the greatest guy I've ever met in my life, and you just walked out on them in the morning and never called them again. Uh, you know, possibly devastating them, and now maybe they're going around and sleeping with a bunch of guys, some of whom may have fallen in love with them, and then the cycle continues, right? So this often happens where um, people will debase romantic or sexual relationships in their own mind, and then they'll go around you know, kind of messing up other people psychologically. And then those people will go around messing other people up psychologically. And then you've got a bunch of cynical people. I found in my experience that people who tend to be relationship guys or relationship girls, where they'll date somebody for like six months or a year or two years or something like that. And then if it doesn't work out, they'll move on to somebody else. Those people tend to be a lot happier. They don't find themselves degrading themselves or debasing themselves or dating people they don't like. If you date somebody you don't like ever, or sleep with somebody you're not really that attracted to, you feel awful about it. At least, at least that's that's been my experience with with people I've known who have done that, um, and, and to some extent myself. You know, I mean, I've I've definitely dated girls that I thought, eh, you know, I'll give it a shot. I'm not like thrilled about it. And then afterwards, I think, why did I even do that? You know, I mean, I, I now she feels bad and I feel bad. The whole thing's a big mess. So better to just like. You know, find the people you really want to be with and go be with them. Also, men are attracted to purity. And I think this goes back to Jonathan Haidt's work, which which Peterson is always bringing up, about disgust, right? Uh, men tend to want a woman who, who hasn't had a lot of partners because it means she's less likely to be diseased, to pass those diseases on to him or their children. And so loyalty and purity are very, very, very important to men. Way more important than women think. Because purity and loyalty aren't as important to women. They're still highly important, especially loyalty is incredibly important to women. But because especially purity isn't as important to women, they don't think often that it's as important to us, but it absolutely is crucial. Um, not every guy thinks that, but most guys I've talked to want a girl with either very few um, previous boyfriends or none. I mean, most guys' ideal is to be with a girl with no previous boyfriends, and I may get some flack with, you know, about that in the comment section, but in my experience, the guys I've asked, that tends to be true. 
And of course, with promiscuity, there's always the, the direct risk of disease or unwanted pregnancy. And obviously, that's a huge issue for both genders with regard to promiscuity. So in societies that do not promote monogamy, it's not only the losers who lose, it's the winners who lose too. And I think that the loss, I think the loss of monogamy in any society usually coincides with the loss of a lot of other values. And, you know, values in, in our case, like we tend to be devaluing masculinity. So we've got a lot of guys coming up now who don't know that they should be masculine. And that's not attractive to women. So there are a lot of women now who will sleep with guys with, without any assurance of, of any kind of monogamous relationship. And you've got a bunch of guys who they're not attracted to because these guys don't know that they should be masculine. You have multiple effects on the problem. And then, of course, you have a lot of women who don't know that they should be feminine. A lot of women don't care about make, making themselves that attractive to men anymore. Women today in America are often taught that it's more important they get a career than they attract a man. And so a lot of women put their their effort into having more masculine characteristics than feminine, and that's not attractive. So now you've got a lot of men and a lot of women who don't even really like each other, right? And that makes it really hard to, to get people together, right? Because now... All the men want a very small percentage of the women, and all the women want a very small percentage of the men, and, you know, all the undesirables are looking at each other like, well, you know, I'm too good for the, that person, or I don't want that, that person isn't at my level. You know, and, and, and now everybody's lonely. It's a, it's a society of lonely people, which is great for Amazon, because what's better for loneliness than a little retail therapy? Now, Rogan challenges Peterson on this idea of forced monogamy by society because, because he, he strikes a parallel between that, the idea of forced monogamy, and the idea of equality of outcome versus equality of opportunity, right, um, with regard to, like, gender or race. And, and Peterson doesn't really give a satisfying answer to this. He says we need to optimize the experience of children. But, you know... Not everybody cares that much about the experience of children. Certainly single people don't. But he did say one thing that's very important. I'm not a fan of unbridled hierarchies, right? And, and this is an extremely important distinction between the conservative and the libertarian. It's also the difference between order and anarchy. And most importantly, it's the distinction between humans and animals. So Peterson has correctly revealed to many of us that values naturally create hierarchies. And you will always find unequal distributions of achievement in any competitive situation. Often those distributions are desirable, and often interfering with those distributions creates much worse situations. That said, this is not always true. Humans have done many things to alter natural phenomena, things that have immensely benefited humanity. The most obvious example is medicine. We have essentially halted human physical evolution. Very few people would argue that 20 extra years with grandma is a bad thing. Very few people would argue that reduced infant mortality is a bad thing, or normal physical functionality in children born with severe handicaps, that that's a bad thing. Nobody argues that, because that would be crazy. Medical technologies have so utterly improved our lives. No sane person would argue that those are bad things. But it is a disruption of the natural distribution of the physical health of human beings, right? Human beings modify natural phenomena when the benefits outweigh the costs. So if you want a distribution of men and women and every race in every field that represents the general population, you're going to have to force a lot of people to do jobs that they don't want to do. That is not just a bad outcome, that's a tragic outcome, right? Equality of outcome is tragic, 
right? And so the cost is, you know, obviously hugely outweighs the benefit. The benefit being really nothing other than sort of like optics. But sexual promiscuity tends to make people miserable. So creating a cultural ethic against it is good. And you might say, well, a lot of people think sexual promiscuity is fun and, and it's great and, I, and, and people like it. I would say that sometimes that's true, but it's usually not the case. Most people who like being sexually provocative are usually people who are either who either have become incredibly cynical because of a traumatic incident, at least in my experience from what I've seen, or they tend to be people who are who have bought into the cultural narrative that promiscuity is fun and monogamy is boring, which is definitely a value that's promoted by Hollywood. So in a sense, a lot of people have been lied to. They try to live by these Hollywood values, and then they, they end up finding out that that's awful. And you might say, well, that's, that's up to them to figure that out. But I, I would disagree with you. I would say that it is in the best interest of society for society to promote ethics that are that actually benefit the society. For instance, a lot of people might say, well, it's great taking heroin. Heroin is a lot of fun. I love heroin, right? But if they're not educated in the idea that, you know, heroin could ruin their life, that it will reduce every ambition they ever have and make them only want heroin and nothing else, and they'll be a vegetable, essentially, for the rest of their lives, that information might balance out the other information that they had. So, so a social ethic really isn't the same thing as, like, a law demanding people do something. A social ethic is merely a distribution of information, right? It's a distribution of a certain kind of information that might contradict something that people might naturally believe otherwise. So, so you might think, well, you know, I want to have, I want to, I want to sleep around with as many women as I can, you know, but then you've got to give people the information like, okay, well, you might get AIDS, right? Or you might have an unwanted child, or you might get a bad name for yourself and people might not want to be with you or some, you know, different things like this. So social pressure is not, is not something that is necessarily harmful. It can be harmful. If society is pressuring you to do something that's bad, that's harmful to you or harmful to society, then it's bad, right? But if social pressure is something that will actually improve society and make your life better, then it's good. And we got to kind of figure out what those things are. But I think that this is really one. I do genuinely think that promiscuity will make people's lives bad and will make society worse. Jordan Peterson is really focused on the children thing, but I don't think that it's the only way in which monogamy benefits society. I, I think, you know, I think that there's a myriad of reasons that should be considered by every single person. People should have this information. And see, the thing is, people used to always get this information because parents would just teach their kids this. Right back in the old days, there was a lot of social pressure for monogamy and for being a good person, you know, and being sort of like sexually exclusive. But now you don't have that. People kind of accept that it's okay to sleep around and stuff like that. And it's, it's, I do think it's degrading our society to some extent and making a lot of people lonely and making a lot of people miserable and making a lot of people actually not enjoy physical relationships and unable to sustain romantic relationships. And I think that's tragic, right? Really tragic. Rank order countries by how egalitarian their social policies are. Does everyone agree? Yeah, yeah. The Scandinavians are at the top. Everyone agrees. Left, right, doesn't matter. Everyone agrees. It's like, okay, so you stack up the cultures by how egalitarian their social policies are. And then you look to see how big the differences are between men and women up that hierarchy of egalitarianism. And if as the societies become more egalitarian, the differences between men and women disappear, then it's sociocultural. That isn't what happened. What happened was 
is that as the societies got more egalitarian, the differences between men and women got bigger, not smaller. It means the sociocultural construct people, and I'm talking to you sociocultural construct people, you're wrong. You're wrong. You make the societies more egalitarian, men and women get more different. Who makes the argument in opposition to this? All the, all the social constructionists, all the radical left-wingers. And what do they use as facts? They don't have facts, but then they criticize the whole idea of facts. Then they go after the whole idea of science as a, as a, as a Western patriarchal construct. And why do they want equality of outcome? Why is this so That's a good question. Well, part of it is, part of it is actual compassion. Look, right. man. It's, it's, it's not good that, some, that people lose, and it's certainly not good that some losers lose all the time. Who wants that? You happy when you walk down the street and see homeless people? It's like, hey, look, the hierarchy's working. Look at these homeless people. No one's happy about that. Right. Right, okay, so the fact of failure within a hierarchy of value is painful. But then also, it isn't just compassion on the left. It's envy. It's like, okay, if I'm so... If I'm standing for the dispossessed, what makes me so sure that I'm not just standing against the successful? And maybe that's because I'm bitter and jealous and envious and resentful. It's clearly the case that the Soviet Union, for example, was motivated by the desire for equality of outcome as a primary motivation. What happened? 25 million people were killed. Why? Why? Well, was it all compassion and love for the dispossessed? Or was it absolutely bitter resentment and hatred for anyone who had any shred of success whatsoever on any possible dimension of evaluation? So this compassion for people that aren't doing well when utilized the wrong way or when approached the wrong way leads to attacking people that do well. Mm -hmm. That's the danger of compassion. This summarizes leftist psychology perfectly. It's elegant. It's precise. It's beautiful. I love how in this particular interview, Peterson is coming out with like, he's figuring out ways to condense ideas into short sentences that are extremely clear, extremely precise, and extremely powerful. And I just, I love that. I love this interview. I have decided to open a Mr. Reagan store. You know, if you like this kind of stuff and you want a cup or you want a t-shirt that, you know, if you want to support my site and, and that would be hugely beneficial to me so i got the link in the description buy some stuff if you want if you don't want that's cool you can still watch my videos good night